Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. All right, we're going to start in John chapter 4 with a famous encounter. Um, I hope when you read the Bible, if a story is really familiar to you, that you pause and you allow it to become fresh again. Invite God to do that. And so a familiar story, but it really, something captured me in it this week. In John 4, 19, the woman says to Jesus, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. And then she has this issue she brings up. It's kind of like a practical or theological question. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. She's talking about a mountain in Samaria. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Just a little background. In the Old Testament, Israel divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was called Samaria, and then the southern kingdom was, was Judah. And the, the Samaritans, which you read about in the New Testament, created their own place of worship. And it was usually idolatry. And then, then the people who stayed faithful worshiped in Jerusalem. So anyways, here's this hurting woman. She's asking an honoring question. She's bringing up an honoring issue. What is the right way to worship? How can I honor God? Now Jesus, because he sees the heart, he, he kind of goes right to the core of the issue. So a few verses later, this is what Jesus says. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Now I want you to look at those last two words there for a second. And this is what I mean about the word can become fresh again. I had never noticed the end of that verse. I want you to think about this for a second. This verse is saying that our Father, the one who created us, he's seeking something. I mean, that, for any believer, that should cause our hearts to stir up. The Father, my Father, is seeking something. Now, I know Steinbach well enough because I lived here many years, if a new business came to town that people loved, and all of a sudden they posted on social media, we're seeking people to come and sample our product for free. I know Steinbeck enough to know there'd be crowds of people there. <laughs> Isn't that true? I mean, we, we often, when there's something we're intrigued by, we'll do everything we can to respond. So here's the question I have this morning. When we hear that the Father is seeking something, does our heart move that quickly? Are we like, I wanna know what my father is seeking? So this is what he's seeking, it says. He's seeking worshipers who worship the father in spirit and in truth. Now, what does that mean? The spirit part, I'm just gonna quickly mention what I think it means, because uh, that's not where I'm gonna focus today. But again, the woman had just asked, where do we worship? And I think Jesus is saying through worship in spirit, is he saying, the time has come and is coming where it's not actually about location. And I'm, I'm very thankful for that, that, that we can gather wherever in the name of Jesus and we can worship. I think that's what he's referring to there. But the, the worship in truth is what I wanna focus on this morning. Worshiping God in truth means worshiping him for who he actually is. Now that, that might seem like an obvious statement, but there's all kinds of debates in our day and age on what God is like. What is God actually like? 
And what I've noticed is that question, what is God like, people are beginning to answer that more based on mere opinion. Well, I, I think God is like this, or God would never do that, or God, he, he must think this. And, and often, we get down this road of potentially misrepresenting God. And that's not the kind of worshiper he's seeking. He is seeking worshipers who worship him in truth, in who he is. Now, I don't know if you've ever been misrepresented, but I'm sure everybody's been misrepresented here at some point, but isn't it true sometimes when you're misrepresented, it hurts? And this happened to me a number of weeks ago, and uh, how I described it to my prayer partners when I asked them for prayer about the situation, I said, it was like I'd been stabbed in my emotions when, when, when somebody began spreading rumors about me and, and making assumptions. Um, it's hard. But at the end of the day, how I move beyond that is, is I say, well, first of all, I learned years ago that even in the harshest criticism, there's always something you can learn. So, and then that person may be misrepresenting me, but at the same time, <laughs> there's people who think I'm better than I am. So in the end, I'm not perfect. It's fine. Um, no problem. But what about the issue of misrepresenting God? How would God feel about that? In Hebrews 13, 8, it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. One of my friends recently, he was in a small group setting, and there was a discussion going on. It was just kind of a, you know, a side conversation. And supposedly somebody in the group said, well, Jesus would never say anything like this. And my friend, now I appreciate their courage, because it's hard sometimes to speak up in a group, said, well, actually, Jesus did say something like that, and he opened up the book of John and read a statement that was very similar. And the person said, no, 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 you, you just, you're behind the times. That's what they said in a small group setting. And my friend had phoned me and said, it was so upsetting. And he said, Maybe I'm wrong, Chris. And I, I said, well, actually, I can, I can list off many verses where Jesus said something like what you were trying to, to say. And he said, I, I just, this person was going just based on their own opinion. Well, that's becoming increasingly common. Psalm 102, verses, uh, verse 27 says, but you remain the same and your years will never end. So one of the takeaways I want to leave us with today, I'm going to talk about some attributes of God this morning. But before we get there, I'm just trying to leave you with this takeaway. What we don't want to do is we don't want to distort who God is. And secondly, this takeaway, there's beautiful fruit in knowing God as he is. We're going to look at a verse in Isaiah 26. Many of you have heard this verse before, but we often take it a little bit out of context and it's okay, I, I'm, I'm not too concerned because, I mean, it's true, God brings us peace. But in the context of Isaiah, we're gonna look at what exactly Isaiah was addressing. So it says, you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Here's a question. Who would like perfect peace? I don't know, put up your hand if you'd like perfect peace. Okay, I'm not gonna say if you don't put up your hand, you're not gonna get perfect peace, okay? <laughs> but I want perfect peace today. I would like perfect peace tomorrow. I mean, there's not a day where I wouldn't want perfect peace. I mean, what a goal. So he continues on. He says, you will keep in perfect peace, talking about God, 
those whose minds are steadfast. Okay, so now steadfastness is an admirable quality. I've always appreciated those people who just put their heads down and keep going and push ahead. But it's not talking about a a human-powered steadfastness. Here's what I've learned. Some of the most determined, driven people often do not have this perfect peace. Or if they have it, it's usually temporarily. There's usually a moment where they're stopped in their tracks. Something happens, and that strong, you know, driven person no longer can function, or they, they end up in despair or severe anxiety. That, that steadfastness born out of our own efforts is not what he's talking about here. Okay, he's talking about a different kind of steadfastness. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast, but what kind of steadfastness? Because they trust in you. The steadfastness is a mind that's focused on God. Now, we, of course, we know this, but that is where perfect peace comes from. Now, why is this in Isaiah? We often take verses, and I do this too, just one verse like this. The problem in Isaiah was that Israel had strayed from God. And their main issue was idolatry. Not just in a sense of worshiping actually idols, though they did that, but in many ways they had learned to trust in themselves. And they began to come up with different images of who God was. It was subtle. It wasn't like one day somebody stood up and said, Yahweh is not like that, he's like this. Our, our straying on our image of God usually isn't an in-the-moment thing. So what Isaiah is doing here is he's calling them back. He says, you want a restoration of peace as an individual but also as a nation? Then you have to have a steadfast mind focused on who Yahweh actually is. And when I say that, when I say that we need to worship God in truth, that doesn't mean worship God in a vague sense. I've often talked about this. It's not just believing in a God. It's believing in a God who has certain attributes. And when we worship him for those things, that is where peace comes. And I'm gonna illustrate, illustrate this in the rest of the message. So we're gonna look at the first attribute I wanna talk about uh, this morning. We'll probably get through three today and then I'm back next week for two or three more. The first one is God is merciful. And the first 10 years that I was a believer, I often didn't think about this attribute, but I do daily now. Here's my definition of merciful. I mean, there's so many different ways you could define it, but this is the way I define it. We don't receive what we deserve. Now, I don't know if you've ever done this, but I've done this a number of times where you make claims on God on what you deserve. Like, God, why aren't you blessing me this way? I don't know if you've ever done that. I'm sure many of you have done that. God, you should, in other words, I've had a good week, Lord, so why are you not blessing me with this? Give me what I deserve, Lord. <laughs> and then often in those moments, all of a sudden I'll think, what if he actually gave me what I deserved in light of what his requirements are? In Lamentations 3, 23, it says, the steadfast love 
of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Amen? Isn't that a good truth? Every morning they're new. But here's the truth. I actually need them every morning. See, see to understand his mercy and to worship him for his mercy, we first have to understand how serious all sin is. And so we're gonna talk about sin for, for a second here. And, and somebody made a comment to me recently, and I, I don't know if it was entirely accurate, that's fine. But um, every, every weekend I go uh, in Winnipeg, I, I go somewhere to share Jesus with people. And um, I'm gonna go this afternoon, I didn't have a chance to go on my normal day, Saturday. And somebody said to me, I, Chris, I know why you share your faith? And I said, well, why? And they said, because you know how messed up you were and are. And I'm like, I thought that was an interesting way to say it. Um, but actually, there's a lot of truth to that. It is easy for me to want to share about Jesus because I recognize how much he saved me from and how merciful he is for me to me every single morning because I still make mistakes. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. It's interesting that it doesn't say the wages of murder is death. Now, obviously murder is serious. That's a serious sin. It doesn't say the wages of scamming the elderly out of money is sin. That would be sin as well, and it's awful. It's horrible. But it speaks generally, for the wages of sin is death. That means the wages of any type of sin is death. I don't know if you've ever been self-righteous, I have at times, where you like to talk about only certain sins, usually the ones you don't commit, while ignoring the pile of sins and the other, the other sins that the Bible talks about. So I'm gonna mention a few here. And my point here isn't to make us feel bad about our sin. My point is to, to be in awe of how merciful God is. So Proverbs calls lying detestable. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands on who's lied in the past year. Um, probably I wouldn't get many people to be honest about that, but I, but I know I've confessed that in the last year a couple times. I confessed to my kids, um, lying to them. Proverbs says it's detestable. The same word used there is used for child sacrifice in the Old Testament. Now, right away, we might want to say, but it's different. And it in a sense, it is different. We, we get that. We get that it's very different, child sacrifice and lying. But it's informative that the Bible doesn't emphasize that distinction always because all sin is very serious. It's very serious. For example, have you ever been lied to? Isn't that painful, right? So. We may say, my lying, oh, well, it was justifiable. But when they lied to me, oh, that was painful. When we make those distinctions, we're no longer worshiping God in truth. It, it, when, I th when I think about how, um, how we minimize some of the things that God doesn't minimize, it causes me to think, oh, he is so merciful. Here's another one, greed. Have you ever struggled with greed? Now, what is greed? I'm not gonna talk about that, that's not the point of the message, but 
I'd imagine in a very materialistic culture that we're in, we struggle with greed. I've struggled with greed at times. How it shows in my life often is a lack of thankfulness and gratitude. The New Testament calls greed idolatry. Have you ever struggled with greed? Slander is like cursing people. Have you ever slandered? Gossip. James equates uh, tearing people down with our tongues as equivalent to cursing people made in God's image. When I start looking at those definitions, I'm like, wow, I have sinned. Bitterness is described as poison in the Bible. As poison. Now those are what we call sins of commission, the sins that we do. But there's also another category, and I didn't come up with these categories, somebody else did, but they're helpful. There's also sins of omission, not doing the good we could do. James 4.17 says, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do, but doesn't do it, sins. Have you ever been prompted by God to do something good and you didn't follow through on it? Have you ever responded to a message or a cell meeting or a devotional and made a commitment and said, God, I'm gonna do that good thing and didn't follow through? Have you ever offered to pray for someone, but then really you don't make any effort to remember that prayer? According to James, that describes that as sin. And I'm like, when I think of that, I'm like, what a pile of sins, not just in my past, but even recently. And my response to that isn't to be condemned. Because it's to worship Jesus and say, you're so merciful. Somebody asked me recently, how do you think you can have the more, most lively worship? And they weren't talking about outward exuberance. They were talking about life in your heart. I said, to understand the mercy of God. <laughs> it never grows old. In one very real sense, God's mercy is poured out on everyone. And I'll explain what I mean by that. On Monday morning, in our neighborhood in Winnipeg, many people will go to work. They're gonna get into their cars, and likely every car will run, and none of them will have flat tires. I mean, possible somebody could have a flat tire, but very likely, on a normal neighborhood, you'll see people leave for work in the morning, and it looks like there's no distinction. What I mean by that is, the people who spent the whole weekend sinning, and the people who tried to live for God that weekend, mercifully, they, all, all their cars usually work. I mean, if it's sunny on Monday, I mean, God is so good and merciful that in many ways, all of humanity doesn't get what it deserves. Now, some of you might be saying, ah, this is, I don't know, this is serious talk, this is uncomfortable, but here's my point. This is how the Bible talks about God and mercy and our sin. So in one sense, his mercy is, is experienced by everyone. They may not even acknowledge it. There's many people who will go to work Monday, they might experience sun, their car might work, they might have the provision of a job, and they'll never thank God for that. But there's another kind of mercy that is for specific people. And Romans 9.15 refers to this, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I, will, I have compassion. No, what Paul's talking about there is the saving mercy, the mercy that paves a way for us to be in a relationship with Jesus and to go to heaven. That mercy isn't, we know this from scripture, is not applied to everyone. 
And it's important, uh, there's a reason why I'm sharing this today because I'd imagine majority here or watching online know this, but there's a point I have at the end of this. So there's a specific mercy. Who is that applied to? Romans, the first eight chapters tell us how you get this saving mercy. In 117, it says, in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. So, okay, it's not just everyone receives saving mercy, it's by faith. It's by faith. Now, that's actually not enough information yet. It's not just faith in faith. It's not faith in some generous life force. It's not faith in just any God. That's not what Romans says. This is what it says in another verse, and there's so many verses in the first eight chapters that talk about this. Romans 3.22, this righteousness comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ. Here's my question. Why am I talking about this? Because we know this. First of all, praise Jesus for his mercy. Amen? For his mercy for us, not just the murderer. For his mercy for us. But my question is this, as we represent God in this world, is it clear as we represent to people that this saving mercy is through the name of Jesus Christ only? That is not a popular truth nowadays, but it's clear through the scriptures. And now I'm not talking about having an kind of prideful attitude about this as if, oh, you know, you can only be saved through Jesus and you don't know Jesus. That's not the attitude of Jesus. <laughs> In fact, if that's our attitude, it may cause us to question whether we know Jesus if that's our attitude. But still, worshiping God in truth means we do not hide that salvation comes through Jesus Christ. There's no other way because of the stack of sins that we've all sinned and anybody outside of this building as well as sinned. So a couple of questions to ask. Do we trust God's mercy through Jesus for our eternal place? I, I don't want to assume just because people are in a church or watching online that that's what we're trusting. We need to trust his mercy, not our works, not that we're at church, not that we read the Bible, not that we served. We need to trust Jesus. And then second, do we trust his mercy to move on into today and move on into tomorrow. What I mean by that is when we sin, and we do sin, how do we handle that? Now, I'm, I'm huge about dealing with our sin. We should confess our sin. We should make things right. But a phrase I came up with a number of years ago to help me, and it helps others too, is we need to deal with our sin but not dwell on our sin. When we worship God in truth, we won't dwell on our sin. We won't dwell on it. So. Yes, when I sin, deal with it. Apologize where I need to apologize. But then, don't dwell in that. Dwell in who he is. Really, really important. In fact, many years ago, I said to a young person, and I was a little uncertain if it was the right thing to say, but I realized later on it was the right thing to say. I said, you want to please Jesus, right? And they said, yes. They were so, they often felt condemned. And I said, you want to please Jesus? Trust his mercy. That's one of the best ways you can please him is by trusting his mercy. So to move on into today and move on tomorrow. Another attribute here. God is judge. 
He disciplines in the present and he will judge all people in the future. Now again, that, to me, I almost deleted this one because it, 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 it seems so obvious. But I'm increasingly reading um, online from even in some cases popular um, authors or pastors that we should never mention judgment. And I think that's incorrect. In fact, um, Jesus himself used judgment as a motivator. Paul did, Peter did, John did. And so, does that negate his mercy? Well, again, how we look at things, we struggle to hold things together. But if we're gonna worship God in truth, rather than responding to our difficulty of understanding how everything fits together by not talking about it at all, we simply can say, I don't get it all, but I still worship him as merciful, and I still worship him as judge. It's not to delete any of the attributes just because we can't reconcile them all in our minds at times. I don't know if you've ever misjudged something, but I have many times. In fact, a few weeks ago, Thanksgiving, we came to Steinbach. My mom still lives here in Steinbach, and uh, we brought along uh, one of Josh's friends from university. Uh, he's from India. He has no family here. So why don't you join our Thanksgiving gathering? And so anyways, we, we came here and my mom always makes like lots of food. So, so I decided it's wise to not just sit after each eat a big meal. I've learned this over the years. So I'd made a plan that after supper, we were going to kind of get out of the place and just go do something. So I said to Josh's friend, would you like a tour of Steinbach? Now that's not very exciting, right? But, but um, anyways, he seemed very excited about this. So we did the about two and a half minutes it takes to drive around Steinbach and, and, um, and one of his comments was like, wow, there's a lot of churches. And I said, yeah, I mean, in India, is there a lot of temples? Oh yeah, there is. I said, yeah, so, but different beliefs. We've been reaching out to him and encouraging him and he's a wonderful young man. And so anyways, I brought him here to the church to get a tour. Nobody was here, it was Saturday night and the service was already done. And so we started walking around the building and he was like, wow, it's pretty big. I said, yeah, it, it is big. And I said, imagine you know, a bunch of people in this space. We were walking in here and uh, came up on stage and I said, can you imagine speaking up there? He's like, oh, that would be terrifying. I said, it can be terrifying, yeah, uh, no doubt. And then Josh went on the drums and started drumming away and, and he's like, wow, Josh, you're good at everything. I said, well, actually, if you live with him for a while, you discover, no, he's not good at everything. <laughs> so, but uh, then we went to the prayer room and he's like, wow, it's peaceful in here. And you know, I, some people have said that, you know, they sometimes say, well, is it peaceful because, you know, like it's a nice space. I'm, I'm convinced that it's not just because it's a nice space. I'm convinced it's because so many people pray in there. I mean, so he was experiencing that peace. And we went to look at the map in the back. We started talking about where he was from in India and different things. Anyways, all of a sudden, I don't know how we started talking about this, but we started talking about going from Toronto to New York. How long would it take to fly? And I said, well, it's about this many hours, you know. Um, my typical personality, it can sound very overconfident sometimes. And so, yeah, that's how long it is. And Josh is like, no, it's way less. And I'm like, no, it's not way less, Josh. Come on, you're like 18. What do you know? You know, like, so... 
Then, of course, nowadays it's so easy to quickly settle those questions. So Josh, I saw him grab his phone. I thought, oh, here we go. Now, normally if his friend wasn't there, this would have turned into a little bit more of a, you know, like a, a, a verbal, uh, uh, you know, debate. But uh, we were both trying to be godly in front of a, a friend here. So, so Josh just quietly says, um, uh, Dad, it's only this many hours. You know, like kind of the number I said. And I was like, I was convinced I was right. We're not good, we're not good at judging things. We, we, we're we're, we're kind of, we don't know all the whole story all the time, right? And, and yet when we talk about God, He is the only one who is perfect in knowledge. All His judgments are fair. So how would we worship a God like that in truth? Well, one way is by not questioning Him. I'm not saying we can't ask questions. But we don't want to go to a place where we put God on trial. Where we say, well, he doesn't know what he's doing. He is the perfect judge. When I, when I look at how often I've been wrong about things, that humbles me and it causes me to worship him as the perfect judge. So what will God judge? There's two things, and I'm going to be very quick on this. One, we've already talked about, he's going to judge what people do with Jesus. 1 John 5, 11 and 12, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. So what we do with Jesus is in part what we will be judged on. But secondly, we're going to be judged based on what we do with the ways of God, with his commands. And again, this idea is becoming even more popular now that you don't need to talk about this with believers because they're covered by the blood of Jesus. But again, that's unbiblical because Paul keeps writing letters to believers and he keeps talking to them about you will be judged for your actions. It's not necessarily a salvation judgment, but it's still a judgment based on what we did with our lives. So a couple examples, 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. He's speaking to believers. All must appear for this portion of judgment. 1 Corinthians 4.5, in the, his first letter to them, he says, he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. So a part of the judgment will be to deal with the motives of the heart. Now, I've discovered motives can be pretty easy to hide at times. I mean, I, my wife and I have talked about this, you know, especially early in marriage. We would, we would sometimes, you know, treat each other poorly, but then when, when it, we were called on it, we would claim to the other person, no, 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 well, my intent was to help you or to bless you. And we like, like we would make these like completely non-factual arguments to each other, like hiding the motives of our hearts. And it's interesting, whenever the motives were hidden, then there wasn't growth. And when we allowed things come to light, there was growth. That's why God wants things to come to light. So 
This is why I define judgment as he disciplines in the present as well. The Holy Spirit prompts us. The Holy Spirit convicts us. The Holy Spirit tells us, almost like an internal GPS, go right, go left. And, and then sometimes that GPS says, turn around, turn around. You've made a wrong turn. Do you ever, by the way, do you ever get annoyed at GPS when it tells you that you've made a wrong turn? Anybody else like me who gets annoyed at your GPS? It's, which is foolish to get annoyed at it. You're the one who made the wrong turn. Um, but I figure it's better to just get mad at the phone yelling at me. Well, I don't think it's yelling at me. It feels like it's yelling at me. It's just this nice, quiet, gentle voice. But it's just like, wrong turn. Like, I feel like it's, I don't know, whatever. I got problems anyway, so <laughs> you can pray for me. I have another story about Josh, but I don't have time for that. I, I, you can, you just, for those who know Josh, just ask him about the speeding tickets he's accumulating while in Winnipeg. Anyways, I'll just mention that there. So, um, so. He takes shots at me too, so. That GPS, why? Here's the question. We're saved by grace, by his mercy. Why prompt us? Why would the Holy Spirit tell us, you're turning the wrong way, you know? Well, partly it's because our character matters on this earth. Of course, that's a big part of it. But here's another reason. God loves us so much, he's preparing us for that day of judgment. He would rather us get it right and receive the fullness of rewards on that day. That's why we want to respond to the, that discipline. And I don't, I don't see it as a threat. When God's disciplining me, when God's prompting me, I see it as an invitation. An invitation to be blessed, but also to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. See, this is where worshiping God in truth is important. We have to sometimes make a distinction with God. Many almost act as if every believer is going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But if you read the parable of the talents, where that's found, you'll discover the one who buried their talent actually doesn't end up in heaven at all. Jesus told that story. So those promptings and those nudges, I'm like, thank you, Lord. <laughs> thank you, Lord. You, you want to make sure that that day that I meet you is wonderful in every way. So here's the questions. Do we accept his discipline? And do we prepare for judgment? Someone might say, but wait a second, mercy, judgment, how do these fit? As I said before, for us with limited understanding, Rather than deleting one or the other, we need to proclaim that God is both. And we, again, people will ask questions. Again, I do evangelism all the time. People will say, what about this? What about this? I no longer feel pressure that I have to connect all the dots. I mean, I answer the best I can. But my goal in that moment isn't to, again, leave the, the uh, impression that you only follow God if he answers every question or if you, ha you have perfect knowledge. <laughs> that's, that's not how it works. So God is judge. And the last one here for a few minutes, God is majestic. I'm not gonna spend as much time on this, not just because of time, but I wasn't planning on spending much time on this. But what does it mean to say God is majestic? He is above all in all things. Psalm 93, one says, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. 
The Lord is robed in majesty and he is armed with strength. What a picture. And a number of years ago, I did a study in the Bible on God's majesty. I'd never studied that attribute before. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll utilize that this weekend. And this is what I discovered. I'm not gonna throw the verses up there just partly because of time. And, but it says in the Bible that God is majestic in power. He is above all other powers. That's what it means. Now, that's reassuring. And I might even talk about his power next weekend. He's majestic indeed. That means he never does anything wrong. He, he only does what is brilliant. Can you imagine that? I, I mean, none of us are like that. I, I know some very good people with lots of integrity, and yet they aren't majestic indeed. Only God is majestic indeed. He's majestic in word. He never breaks his promises. He always comes through. Another passage links his majesty with joy. How are majesty and joy connected? This goes back to the perfect peace. When we have our eyes on ourselves or on others' opinions, we're, we end up all over the place emotionally. But when we realize who God is and he is above all in all things, when our eyes are fixed on that God, joy follows along. I mean, to me, the more I think about myself, the less joy I have. And I, I have a high view of myself in the sense, I know God extravagantly loves me. And he rejoices over me with singing. Oh, I, even there, I've learned to have higher thoughts. Oh yeah, but God, I do this and this. Oh, but I died for you. That's what I mean. Think the highest things that we possibly can about his attributes. We might be facing an impossible situation. Are we reciting in our minds how impossible it is? Or are we worshiping him in majesty and saying, but you're more powerful than this situation, God? That's what I mean about worshiping him in truth. The other day I was listening to a song in my car, maxed out volume, and I, I didn't feel too loud. I mean, the car wasn't shaking or anything. We have a very normal radio. And it was just, but it was maxed out and, and my ears are often plugged, so maybe it was very loud, but nobody was in the car to complain. So I was just having my own little worship time in the car. I was driving here to the church. And uh, as I'm worshiping, all of a sudden this thought came to my mind as I thought about the maxed out volume. I thought, only God is maxed out in goodness and purity and faithfulness. So here's my question, or questions. Do we praise him for his majesty? Do, does our praise match his majesty? In, in one sense, our praise won't match his majesty. We're limited. We get weak, we get tired, we struggle. But my question is, what direction are we moving in? And here's a good way to ask that. It, it actually has little to do with what happens on Sunday morning. What the people who you live with and the people that you work with and the people that you're in cell with, would they say that you praise Jesus for his majesty? Here's another way of saying it. Are you making Jesus famous? Because that's our goal. I mean, there's a temptation in our society right now where there's a jockeying for influence. Social media has a consequence with that. 
So the question is, from our lips, and from our lives, are we praising him for who he is? Is that something we're doing? And secondly, do we proclaim him and his majesty? Do we tell people about how amazing Jesus is? So here's a challenge I have for us this weekend with that question. Let's commit to not being vague about who Jesus is. I was actually confessing this week this. Do you ever have something in your life that you think you're pretty good at and you don't have to grow as much in that area, but you have to grow in other areas? You ever had that where you're like, because maybe you were so awful in that area before, so you're like, now I don't have to grow in that, you know, as much anymore, but there's these other areas. But God began to speak to me on this one again. He said, Chris, sometimes you purposely are vague about who I am. And that's not worshiping him in truth. I'm gonna ask you this question. As you read in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and you think of these different biblical characters and their interactions with other believers, but also unbelievers, is there any sense that you get that they were vague about who God was? A lot of times we're trying to protect ourselves by maybe not mentioning certain things about Jesus or, or not trying to stir up certain things. Now, again, we need to love even as we proclaim his majesty. That's a part of proclaiming his majesty is to love. But I made a commitment, a fresh commitment this week to not be vague about Jesus. When we get to meet Jesus face to face and enter eternity, there's gonna be nothing vague about the worship. It's not gonna be kind of buried under, you know, statements that are, kind of could be applied to anything. And so I wanna encourage us, we're gonna worship in a moment, we're gonna praise him for his majesty, but I wanna encourage us also, while we're still here on earth, to practice proclaiming him and his majesty. Right now we have a world that a lot of people are just tired or they're anxious. Here's what I've discovered. They can't have the opportunity to experience Jesus if I don't actually lift up who Jesus is, like who he really is. Like if, if I just say, you know, uh, God, there's a God. That, that, I find that doesn't move people's hearts. In fact, many people have an image of God and it's not moving their hearts. Only God as who he truly is can actually move hearts. And I'm gonna add this also. The Holy Spirit also is God. The Holy Spirit will show up in your conversations with believers and unbelievers in ways you've never experienced before if you choose not to be vague. It only makes sense. If my wife is in the room with me and I'm talking about her, but I'm being vague. You know, I'm in this relationship and it's pretty good and she's not bad and all that. Carolyn's not gonna run over and say, oh, I wanna, you know, put my arms around you, Chris. That's not gonna make her, that's not gonna invite her into the conversation. But if I'm sharing who she actually is, well, she has stood by me through so much. She has served with me. She has labored hard. She, She's done so much with our kids. If I start talking about her as who she really is, that's gonna invite her in. And it's also 
going to give people an opportunity to say, oh, that would be a neat person to get to know. Or some might say, I don't want to know a person like that. That's their choice whether they reject or accept. That's my question here. When we're with other believers and unbelievers, are we giving people the opportunity to respond to the true Jesus? We can't summarize our Christian walk to simply just doing good deeds. Our good deeds should precede proclamation. Our good deeds should accompany our proclamation. And good deeds should often follow our proclamation. But if all we're doing is good deeds, we're falling short of proclaiming him in his majesty. So I've been challenged by that this week. And I hope you're challenged by that. So let's enter worship now. Let's praise him in his majesty. Thanks again for joining us for our weekend message. If you have any needs or prayer requests, please give us a call at 204-326-9020 or email prayer at myselfland.com. Once again, our phone number is 204-326-9020 and the email address is prayer at myselfland.com.